0: Catching you up on the latest stories that you should know from around the Sunshine State heading into this Tuesday morning and the last day of the month, February 28th. I'm Sarah Sowers, and this is The Point from WUFT News. Continuous aftershocks, including one Monday in southern Turkey and along the Syrian border, have left more people injured following the record-breaking 7.8-magnitude quake on February 6th near Gaziantep that left over 50,000 people dead and an estimated 2 million displaced. To better understand earthquakes and the risks they pose to society, I spoke with seismologist and UF associate professor of geological sciences Ray Russo, who shared why even Florida may be at risk of an earthquake.
1: Turkey and Syria have between them not only a political border, but also a border between plates. So Syria mostly sits on the Arabian plate, and Turkey sits on a small plate, the Anatolian plate. So the plates are constantly moving. They move because the earth is a very large heat engine. It's very hot inside. And this heat has to get out somehow into outer space. And the way it does that is through convection of the earth's mantle. So the mantle is like a boiling pot of rocks. It's boiling at a very, very slow rate, though. But it's constantly moving. And when it moves, the plates move. So Arabia is moving northwards towards europe towards eurasia at about a few centimeters a year and in between them is turkey so turkey actually is being kind of squeezed out from between the two larger plates moving westward and it does that along two very large strike slip faults, like the san andreas fault in california that people in the u.s are familiar with and when it When what happens is as the plates continually move, stress builds up on those faults. And eventually that stress, these forces get so large on the faults that the rocks on either side of the fault break. And when they break, we get an earthquake. Now, the particular fault that broke during these Turkey earthquakes is called the East Anatolian fault. And it hasn't had a pretty large earthquake for quite some time. So the stress that built up there has been building for a long, long time. And when it finally did rupture this, the rocks on either side, all that stress and all that build up up, uh, uh, elastic strain was released suddenly in this very large earthquake, magnitude 7.8. That was the first earthquake. Just a little while after, there was another magnitude 7.5, almost as large. And both of those earthquakes ruptured most of the East Anatolian Fault.
0: Why was that area so susceptible to this? And why was it so bad?
1: On the surface, above the East Anatolian Fault, are all these people. They live in Syria and they live in Turkey and they live in buildings. And when you are injured or if you die in an earthquake, the way that happens is the building collapses on you. The earthquake of such a large magnitude that it really shook the buildings in this area very, very strongly. And many of them, as we know, failed. Now, it turned out that uh, through extraordinarily bad luck, this earthquake, the first one, hit at around four in the morning. So most of the people were home in bed. Now Syria, you know, has been undergoing a civil war for the last twelve years, and many of the people who were who were injured, who were killed, were living in very substandard um, structures, and that contributed to the death toll. In Turkey, it looks like they've got on the books six, you know, pretty good rules for how to build buildings, but some of those buildings were older and were grandfathered in under under. Um, Rules that exist today and and didn't meet the standards that we expect in a in an earthquake prone region, you know, kind of a confluence of a few different things happening. Not a large earthquake for a long time means that the people in the area are not very much aware that that uh, they have to take care of themselves and they have to make sure that they're um, that they're ready for an earthquake. So all those factors contributed to make these this particular set of earthquakes very devastating.
0: What makes that area of the earth and those plates different than kind of the things we see in the U.S. or where in the U.S. is more susceptible to earthquakes? I know you mentioned California. Are there any other places
1: There are. So our west coast is a plate boundary from the southern border with Mexico to the northern border with Canada. in fact, the plate boundaries extend beyond those political borders into Mexico and into Canada to the north. We have this San Andreas Fault, and the San Andreas Fault very much like the East Anatolian Fault. So on the Pacific side, Pacific plate is moving to the north, and on our side, the North American side, we're moving south along that plate, more or less. And the rate is pretty high. It's about five centimeters a year. So we have pretty large earthquakes, and we've known about these earthquakes for a long time. Going into Oregon and Washington and into Canada, we have a subduction zone. And there's a small plate called the Juan de Fuca plate that's actually subducting beneath North America. Subduction makes the Cascade volcanoes, Mount Rainier, you might have heard of that one, Mount St. Helens, those volcanoes that uh, erupt every once in a while. And even more concerning than the volcanic hazard is the fact that in subduction earthquakes, we can attain very high magnitudes when seismicity happens, when earthquakes happen. So we know that sometime in 1700, there was a really large earthquake that ruptured that Cascadia subduction zone. And the reason that we know about it, because it generated a tsunami. On the other side of the Pacific, the tsunami killed people in Japan. And that that was a surprise because they were used to having tsunamis and earthquakes together happen together. The earthquake and then the tsunami was a regular occurrence in Japan, but this tsunami came out of nowhere. So the earthquake was far enough away that nobody felt it in Japan, but the tsunami still killed a lot of people. And it, it ended up being as a part of their record written record, which is the first indication we've had that there was that large earthquake. We have infrastructure as well as population at risk, and those earthquakes, that'll happen again. It's inevitable. We can't stop them. Uh, we don't know how to predict them. We don't see a consistent preparatory phase. We don't see anything that changes consistently before an earthquake that we observe. So it's impossible for us so far to predict when and where these earthquakes are going to happen, but we we know that they will at some point.
0: Kind of taking that back, I know in Florida, we don't necessarily suffer from earthquakes, but how does this kind of extreme event compare to what we witness here, like hurricanes or tornadoes?
1: Good question. Well, if you think about the energy that's that's involved in an earthquake compared to a hurricane or a tornado, the earthquakes completely overwhelm the energy levels of the others that you're talking about. So, you know, if you think about a hurricane, they're very damaging. There's no doubt about it. And we have to worry about that here in Florida. So in terms of population effect, the effect on people, the effect on infrastructure, there are similarities. But in fact, in terms of just, you know, energy release and the amount of force involved, there's there's no comparison. The earthquakes win totally.
0: When we're thinking about buildings in Florida, I know, you know, we had the Surfside condo collapse. Sure. Um And then cases like this where we're seeing in Turkey and in Syria where buildings are just collapsing, how can that be prevented or what kinds of things can builders or planners do to prepare these cities for these kinds of natural disasters?
1: Even though we can't predict when earthquakes are going to happen, we we can predict pretty well how damaging these events are going to be. And the way we do that for hurricanes, for example, is we predict the top top velocity of the winds that's going that are going to be blowing. And for earthquakes, we predict the top magnitude that's going to happen. And the, and the way that we do that for earthquakes, for example, is you can expect the magnitude of the earthquake to be large if the surface that ruptures, the fault surface that ruptures is large and the slip on that surface is large. So if you have a big fault, got a large surface area, and you expect a fair amount of slip on it, it will produce a big earthquake sooner or later. So now we know how big the magnitude is gonna be. We can also predict how much shaking, what acceleration we're gonna get on the Earth's surface due to that shaking. And if we can predict that pretty well, and we can, Then we can say, well, any structure that we have to build in this particular area has to be built to withstand this amount of acceleration, this amount of shaking. So then, now we can put together regulations, codes, building codes, any building built in such and such an area has to meet these design criteria and engineering criteria. And those are good, that's all great. The next step is when the buildings are being built and afterwards. We have to have structural engineers constantly monitor how those buildings are happening. So you you talked about the Surfside collapse. Well, that building was at one time structurally very sound, but in the meantime, because of salt water and uh, uh, various de- degradation, I mean, just the building started to degrade with time. It became unsound. If the building had been, um, you know, correctly maintained and correctly, you know, upgraded, then that that building would not have collapsed, right, the way it did. Now, we in Florida are not very far away from the subduction zone. We're not very far away from places where there are pretty large magnitude earthquakes, for example, in the Caribbean, okay? So in my time at the University of Florida, it's happened a few times that we've had pretty big earthquakes in the Caribbean, and people in Florida have felt that shaking. People in the Keys have felt that, people in Miami have felt some of those earthquakes. Um, We have not yet seen a very large magnitude earthquake in recent times uh, in the Puerto Rico area where there's a subduction zone, but Puerto Rico is at risk. That's part of the US and Florida might be at risk too. Um, Although at much much diminished risk relative to say, for example, Puerto Rico.
0: And looking forward, can we expect any other kinds of events? or devastation, whether that be more aftershocks or something else?
1: Once one of these devastating events has happened, there's usually a cascading set of secondary problems that occur. So, for example, uh, when, it, when you have thinking about an earthquake or a hurricane, infrastructure that's damaged, like roads and bridges, will mean that it's impossible or very difficult for first responders and for people who are trying to help to actually get access to places. And in Turkey and in Syria, that's been especially a problem. You know, many of the roads were damaged, bridges were damaged. People can't get to these places to help people in, you know, a short amount of time. And usually there can be other cascading effects. For example, if an event like this happens during the winter, a lot of people will be burning fires to keep warm. Uh, And that can cause fires, right? The earthquake knocks over stoves, the earthquake knocks over something that's on fire, and that causes a fire to spread. At the same time, water mains, which we would use to put out such fires, are broken, right? The pipes break, and we don't have water to put out the fire. So there's a lot of thinking and planning that has to go into effect in order for us to survive these events very well. And it's not just what I was talking about before, where we have to say, well, the buildings have to withstand this shaking or this degree of wind, you know, wind velocities. We also have to plan for these secondary effects. We have to make sure that it's possible for people to get help and to have water and to have food and these sorts of things, heat, shelter in the aftermath of such events. So it's a problem for a lot of people in civil defense, not just um, engineers, and not just building people, but also lots of other people, have to think, have to be involved in the planning for these events.
0: That was Ray Russo, a seismologist and UF associate professor of geological sciences, talking about the science behind the latest string of devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Now, for today's top headlines from around the state. In Citrus County, a Florida man has been arrested on felony and misdemeanor charges for his actions during the breach of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. WFLA Tampa reports Jesse James Rumson of Lakanto, Florida, was seen wearing a panda head at the Capitol and made his first court appearance yesterday. In the 25 months since January 6, more than 985 individuals have been arrested in nearly all 50 states for crimes related to the breach. On Monday, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill that gives him control of Walt Disney World's self-governing district, punishing the company over its opposition to the so-called don't-say-gay law. The Associated Press reports the bill requires DeSantis to appoint a five-member board to oversee the government services that the Disney district provides in its sprawling theme park properties. Damage from consecutive hurricanes is getting more common in the United States, and that trend will accelerate and threaten millions of people as the Earth gets hotter, according to new research. NPR reports climate scientists at Princeton University found that flood and wind risk posed by storms has steadily increased. The study also noted that in the next 70 years, series of storms like Harvey and Irma or Ian and Nicole will become more common. Subscribe to The Point Newsletter, which drops the latest Florida stories into your inbox every weekday morning at 8 a.m. Visit wuft.org to subscribe and view our most recent issues. I'm Sarah Sowers, and you have been listening to The Point from WUFT News out of the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications. Have a great Tuesday.